Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the 367th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Lauren Davis, Professor of Anthropology and Executive Director of the Keystone Archaeological Research Fund, who has taken the time out of his busy schedule to talk to us about early human history in Northwest Coast. The history buff for today's show is Terry Toppler. Uh, the show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zapdel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. David Baker. This is the opening segment of our show, which is called Farouk Dinarin, and today we're talking about early human history of the Northwest Coast with Dr. Lauren Davis, Professor of Anthropology and Executive Director of the Keystone Archaeological Research Fund. Lauren, can you give our listeners some background into the theories about early human migration into the Americas? Yeah, I'm happy to. So, um, I think as everyone knows, when European explorers came to the Americas, so Christopher Columbus and others, for example, and the Americas sort of in a larger picture of you know, the Caribbean to North, Central, and South America, they were surprised to find that the area that they thought was going to be uninhabited territory was actually full of lots of people. And so through time, um, explorers and settlers uh, later on tried to come up with explanations for how is it that uh, this part of the world that uh, had all these people in it, how did it come to actually become populated by humans? And archaeologists have looked at this kind of question for a long time, and it's, it's, a, it's a theme of archaeological research in the Americas that's sometimes referred to as the first Americans research uh, theme. And the traditional model uh, is essentially that people came from Northeast Asia, uh, during the end of the last glacial period, and they would have been able to walk or uh, perhaps paddle, but the traditional model is that they would have walked from what's now Russia to Alaska, and that would have been possible because during the last ice age, to make ice the size of Canada, essentially, you uh, take the water budget out of the ocean, and it draws the ocean down in elevation, and it creates a land bridge between Russia and Alaska. So today, the Bering Strait is not very deep, and uh, before, about 12,000 years ago, you could make this walk. And as the traditional model goes, people would have come to the interior part of Alaska and Yukon, and there may have been a gap between the glacial ice sheets that covered Canada at the time, and they would have been able to move their way south through this ice sheet, exiting into Montana and the Dakotas, and um, would have been able to migrate through the rest of the Americas. So that's a traditional model of how it sort of happens. And then the timing of all this is that uh, traditionally it was thought that people probably did this about 13,000 years ago and a little bit before that, maybe you know, 13,500 years ago. Um, and the evidence for this 13,000-year time frame comes from the plains in the American Southwest in a series of archaeological sites that produced artifacts known as Clovis artifacts. So that's the traditional model. Okay. Okay. Um, so, yeah, go ahead, John. I was going to say, okay, so um, let us talk about the entire Western Hemisphere. Uh, 
how what is the um, the time frame in which this migration went through what is pretty much present day North America to reaching into what would be present day South America? Um, I mean, I know it's as you said, thirteen thousand years ago for the cross, but to reach in areas that you know we consider to be obviously with people today in South America, how long did that take to go across two continents? Well, that's that is a good, really good question because it becomes um, answering that question gets us to beginning to doubt the traditional model because what happens is that you have people in Chile. Um, south, way, way south of these ice sheets, they're they're there at this site called the Monte Verde site um, before 13,000 years ago. In fact, they're there at a time uh, that's a little bit before 14,000 years ago. So this set up a very inconvenient situation where it's like, how in the world can you have people way in South America long before they were supposed to have arrived in North America? So one explanation for this, of course, is that, well, the traditional model is probably not correct. It's probably not simply that people got here by 13,000. They must have gotten here earlier. And so the question would be asked, well, why don't we see all these archaeological sites then in the Great Plains in the Southwest and other places where we had found the earliest evidence before? So that's when people started to ask questions about, well, maybe they came through different routes of entry. Including maybe things like the coast. Okay, so uh, your research is is really aimed at sort of looking at some alternative theories. Um, what are the the, the possible the, the best sort of uh, alternative theories to the traditional at this point? And what kind of research are you doing to, to hopefully prove those? Prove or disprove? So, right. So. Um, I worked at an archaeological site known as the Cooper's Ferry Site. And this is located in western Idaho near the junction where Oregon and Idaho and Washington come together. So your listeners can generally locate it pretty easily that way. And um, this part of the Pacific Northwest is within the larger Columbia River Basin. And so we're in the Salmon River Canyon, which is a tributary of the snake, which flows into the Columbia. So anyway, the point is, is that this archaeological site um, was known since the 1960s to have uh, held really early-looking artifacts, but we didn't really understand the timing of when people had been there because the technology for deriving radiocarbon dates has evolved a lot since the 1960s. And I started working at the site initially in 1997, um, but then I went back and worked there more intensively from 2009 until 2018. And that 10-year period of time uh, allowed us to actually find a lot of evidence that people lived at Cooper's Ferry before about 16,000 years ago. So this was evidence and results that we published in the journal uh, Science last summer. And... Um, so basically what we show is that people initially arrive least, at least at Cooper's Ferry, and they begin to live there, leave behind artifacts, leave behind pieces of bone. They make campfires. It looks like they butchered an extinct form of a horse, and uh, they probably ate it there, and they left behind all this stuff for us to find that shows that they repeatedly came back to the site over and over and over again 
uh, from 16,000 years to about 13,000 years. So that's the timing of what I said the traditional model was. So at Cooper's Ferry, you've got people living at this site uh, about 3,000 years before they appear in these other sites, the Clovis sites in the plains in the southwest. So, so what's important about all that is it just simply demonstrates that the timing of people in the Americas is deeper than we previously thought, and that also there's no way to get south of the ice sheets through a gap in the ice sheet by 16,000 years ago. You have to go around the ice sheet somehow, and that's why we think that people very likely came down the Pacific coast from Northeast Asia. Okay. Uh, quick question, if you could please just to inform our listeners. You talk about ice ages, and of course, uh, we're not that far from uh, the driftless area in the Midwest, so we understand uh, the value of um, several of the ice ages and how they impact our uh, agricultural and Midwest world. Um, could you explain to our listeners, there were four major ice ages and uh, if you could, in a nutshell, this is kind of review, I understand. Um, tell them about their, if you can, their impact on our modern world today. Sure. So during the last two million years of time, we've had many, many different cold events that resulted in the accumulation of the Earth's water budget um, on land. So basically, we get the growth of very large glacial, glacial ice sheets and some of these events are so large that we geologists and archaeologists and others refer to them as glacial periods, or sometimes they're referred to as ice ages. But um, glacial periods are essentially um, found multiple times in the last two million years. And the reasons for why these happen are related now uh, due to complex interplays between the geometry of the Earth's orbit around the sun. For example, it's not a fixed shape. It changes from oval to circle to oval at time periods that coincide with other things to do with Earth's orbit, but also has to do with complex interplays with the atmosphere and the ocean and things like this. So, but the larger point is that when you put ice on the landscape at continental scales, it can remove mountains. It can grind them down to essentially flower like you have in and uh, in the Midwest, in the Great Plains, you see enormous sheets of this very fine dust. So you could probably argue that the geologic history of the Americas with its glacial history was imperative to actually producing the kinds of soils that now support modern American lifeway. You know, that basically without this glacial history, we probably wouldn't have the same kind of productive soils that support agriculture, for example, in the Americas. So... Um, so that's you know a quirk of geologic history that matters a lot to today, and um, also too it reroutes you know the paths of rivers and creates obstructions in terms of lots of gravel deposits and things. So it has we can think of this sort of a geologic heritage that what happened before has a big effect even thousands to millions of years later. Okay, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
KALA 88.5 FM, the radio station with the most diversity in the Quad City region. Jazz, blues, R&B, hip-hop, Spanish and Hispanic programming, gospel, new rock, oldies, news, and shows addressing local community issues, and the world's best in entertainment and news from Public Radio International. Here's something different on KALA 88.5 FM, the most diverse radio station in the Quad City region. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of our show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Lauren Davis, Professor of Anthropology and director, Executive Director of the Keystone Archaeological Research Fund. And today we're talking about early human history in the Northwest Coast. Our history buff for today's show is Terry Toppler. Terry, you get the first question in the second segment. Thank you. Yes, Dr. Davis, um, when we're talking about early human history of the Northwest Coast, can you define uh, for our listeners what the Northwest Coast entails? Sure. So geographically, the Northwest Coast extends from Northern California, um, so north of San Francisco, but it gets into the northern counties of California, and then up the Oregon coast, up the Washington coast, through British Columbia, and into the southern part of Alaska. So it's that sort of strip along the edge of the Pacific coast in northwestern North America. Okay. Um Lawrence, so the alternative theory would be that, that people came down the, the northwest coast. Um, what kinds of sites uh, have you been able to find, or, or what seems to, or maybe I'll, the better question is, what do you look for when you're trying to, to find sites that you're going to investigate to try to prove this theory? Yeah, so that ends up being a big problem because, as I mentioned before, during the last glacial period, we had a piece of ice, or actually two big pieces of ice, that covered Canada. And so that is an incredible amount of water that came out of the Earth's oceans. And as a result, it would have drawn down the Earth's oceans to a lower elevation. So at the height of the last glacial period, uh, the world's oceans were roughly 300 feet lower than today. And where mm -hmm. I am in Oregon, this translates to uh, us having about 30 extra miles to the west of coastline and because we had relatively shallow continental shelf zones. And depending on where you are up and down the northwest coast, the shape of this extra coast would have been different. But through time, as we transition from a glacial to a post-glacial period, this is where we are now in a post-glacial period, all that ice would have melted from Canada. It would have gone back to the oceans and caused sea level to rise again. And so much of the landscape that's relevant to the question of can we find evidence of people migrating down the coast before 16,000 years ago is out there under the waves. And this sets up a, a real challenge for us to try to find these sites because it's not only like, you know, let's just get some scuba gear on and go look. I mean, it's 300, you know, to 200, let's say, feet below the surface. And for your readers who, or sorry, your listeners who know, about scuba, it's like there's no way you're putting normal scuba people down there on the bottom. That's specialized stuff. So right. I have been doing research as part of another group where 
We're trying to help the federal government figure out where archaeological sites could be on the continental shelf, because as they explore options for energy development, and that could be all kinds of different kinds of approaches, there may be ground disturbance activities that happen, and they try to they want to try to avoid siting development on a place that could have a site, so they can just move over 20 meters and avoid it or something. But we're trying to help them understand where sites could be. So I've been on ships where we go out and we use geophysical instruments to look into the seafloor, and we can actually map where ancient river systems used to flow across the continental shelf. And that gets us closer to figuring out where people may have left behind evidence because water is really the lifeblood of a lot of things, and hunting and gathering and fishing people are attracted to estuaries and rivers and so on. So, so far we haven't found uh, any evidence of archaeological sites, but what we are seeing is that a lot of this stuff is very deeply buried also between, behind or, sorry, beneath uh, sand as sea level rose again. So, so really the way to find these early coastal sites, at least right now, is one, to keep looking offshore, but also to try to focus on what parts above sea level might be productive. So what we consider the modern coastline today, you can go to the coast in Oregon and stand on the edge of the ocean. Well, that's a product of roughly the last 4,000 years. About 4,000 years ago, sea level got to that point. And so what we consider the modern coast today used to be the upper limits of a watershed, let's say, that used to extend way out to the west. So we just have to think about what would motivate people to move inland and leave behind artifacts and try to find it there. Okay, then to ask this question, Lauren, you're saying that the uh, coast is 30 miles further west. Uh, Were there any signs, and I know this is uh, pre-agriculture domestication, so I'm not saying that they were uh, settled, but definitely more hunter-gatherers, but are there been any signs where you possibly have some cultures that you would say were more developed or left greater um, remains that said, yeah, that this was actually kind of a, a mecca of a gathering? Have you come across anything like that so far? Well, I think the closest evidence to that might be coming out of um, British Columbia. So our Canadian archaeologists working there have found an archaeological site that um, radiocarbon ages suggest it could be 13,000 years or perhaps earlier. This is all still pretty new. They're working on it now. We haven't learned all the details. But there are places in British Columbia where the glacial ice is so heavy, it actually distorts the shape of the continental crust, so the edge of the Earth's crust, and it will push it down. And and so what happens then is as sea level comes up, as the ice melts, the ground rebounds back up. So it's like standing on a bed. You can depress the springs and get the bed to go lower, but as you jump off, the springs come back up. So there's sort of a sweet spot in British Columbia and southern Alaska where essentially things never got submerged or they're only a little submerged. And so the Canadians have figured this out, and now they're beginning to find evidence of things that look a lot like people staying in one place and making, you know, bigger messes associated, let's say, with, you know, camps or who knows, maybe it'll be something like a village. I don't know. But they found things that we've never seen before on the coast in these earlier time periods that look a lot like later stuff. That's as close as I think we can get to. Okay, Terry. 
Uh, yes. Uh, Dr. Davis, you mentioned that radiocarbon dating has evolved since the 1960s, and obviously that would change some theories. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and what has changed with uh, the dating system? Well, uh, radiocarbon dating, in terms of its primary principles, uh, was established by a scientist named Libby. And um, so he figured out the mechanics physically how it all works. And that part hasn't changed. The way we understand how radiocarbon decays and how you can use that to measure time, that part hasn't changed. What's changed is our ability to measure how much of a radiocarbon signal is left in a sample. That's changed a lot. So since the 1960s, we were able to move from requiring really large samples. So you might have need something that, you know, was a chunk of, you know, a really big chunk of bone or a large chunk of charcoal, maybe something like a briquette in your barbecue, down to today we can get a radiocarbon date on something that's about the size of a grain of rice. And in archaeological sites, you know, it's often not common to get large chunks of datable objects. You know, at some some archaeological sites, you get really great organic preservation, but, for example, at Cooper's Ferry, we did not. So we really wouldn't have been able to work out the answers that we've gotten now in the 1960s. They just couldn't have figured it out because the technology hadn't quite, the methods hadn't changed enough yet. Thank you. Okay. Um, Lauren, I'm curious about the the peoples who are who are doing this migration and are you, are you expecting as this time frame goes back are you expecting to to run across um, tool signatures and things like that 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 may be um, different than than what had been around before i'm I'm just kind of wondering if if you aren't really entering new territory in terms of stumbling onto things that, that may be very different than what's been discovered before. Right. So at the Cooper's Ferry site in Idaho, we actually found the bases, the bottom parts of some spear points that um, show us sort of um, the ways in which people are thinking about how to take a block of rock and shape it through in a sense, it's almost like a form of sculpture, I guess. You're sculpting it out of rock. But they could take it from a raw material piece of rock and turn it into something refined, like a spear point. And that process is something that requires, you know, you think about what you're trying to achieve, so you have an idea, and then you're putting that idea into practice through a whole series of moves that get you to this end product that looks a certain way. So why I bring this up is that essentially – Certain artifacts can show us details of sort of how people think about things like technology because they're clearly trying to make it a certain way over and over again in some cases. So at Cooper's Ferry, what we found were some bases of spear points that we had not seen exactly this form in the Northwest, and we hadn't actually seen it in the Americas much uh, before. And when we started to look to other parts of uh, Northeast Asia, for example, of well, who else is making artifacts like this before they show up at the time that we have them at Cooper's Ferry? So let's say, you know, who in the north northeastern part of Asia is making them be, before, let's say, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen thousand years ago? And it turns out the only place that really looks like what we found at Cooper's Ferry and is in the right time period comes from northern Japan. And so there's a the island of Hokkaido in northern Japan, and there's a whole series of other islands to the north of that that are um, 
part of Russia, for example, they would have created a mega island during lower sea level. And this area uh, has archaeological remains that are old enough and look similar enough that we think that could be the place where a lot of these technological ideas are coming from. So that actually was quite surprising to us because most of the time people think they're coming from higher latitudes in northern Russia and Siberia and so on. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, Question here, Lauren. Um, We talked about, uh, I'm going to go back to the geological. Uh, As I said before, we are in a region here in the Midwest that is very different from many other places uh, because the Ice Age, the Pleistocene, didn't either develop, the ice didn't develop here or it wasn't as thick. Where we're talking about in the northwest coast, is there uh, a geological site out there? I know you kind of talked about British Columbia, how it kind of sprung back. But is there an area out there that you look around and go, man, this is so different than anything else? I mean, we got the Driftless here. We kind of have the Los Hills in western Iowa where they have those hills that are totally different than anything else in the world. Where would you pick out there that stands out? Well, um, I mean, there are places in British Columbia where you can go to, because of the way in which ice is depressing the landscape and it bounces back through time, it actually, in some places, pressed it down, you know, much lower than today, and sea level was relatively higher than today rather than being lower than today in the past. So then as ice melted, the ground rebounded back up, and on some islands in British Columbia, you can actually find shorelines from the Pleistocene where the ocean was that are away from the modern coastline in the woods, sometimes many meters higher than today. Really? So that's like, it's it's totally reverse thinking of how it all happens, but it's just the quirks of basically large-scale deformation of the Earth's crust at certain times. And then the ocean would be in there cutting a notch. So it would cut shorelines essentially in the islands. And so the Canadians figured this out. Canadian archaeologists have been then doing survey where they go, not on the coast, but they go inland into the forest and find ancient coastlines. So that was really quite wow. clever to figure that out. So Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have about um, three minutes left, so I'm going to ask the last question, and then uh, I want to get sort of give you the last word. Uh, but I hope we can do this quickly. Um, can you tell us in about a minute what the Keystone Archaeological Research Fund is? Yeah, for sure. Uh, It is a million-dollar endowed fund at Oregon State that was gifted by Joe and Ruth Kramer of Colorado, and they set up a series of these kinds of funds around the United States. And what they do is they help us generate money that we can use to further the search for the earliest evidence of peoples in the Americas. Because a lot of the work I do is sometimes pretty speculative. Like You don't know if it's going to work out or not, so having this resource – Funding-wise, really helps us go out on a limb, and sometimes we can actually really make neat discoveries. All right. Well, we want to give you the last word. That's customary for us. So, Lauren, please uh, talk to us a, a short, you know, quickly. Uh, what is it about knowing early human migration in the Americas that's relevant in today's world? Well, I think what's important is we're talking about one of the last major episodes of human migration onto our planet in different places. And, I mean, it is it is a mark of our own species to be curious about ourselves. 
and to really, really be interested in understanding what we have done in the past that got us to where we are now. So I think that's what's relevant about this. And it also just shows us really interesting things about the resiliency, the ability for people to make it, you know, under all kinds of different conditions. And to me, that's just fascinating. It, the sense of wonder we can learn about the past and how people uh, solve their different problems. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. This program, the award-winning Relevant or Irrelevant, is heard Friday evenings at 9.30 p.m. Central Time on KALA HD2 or 106.1 FM in the Quad City area. You can listen over the air or anywhere via TuneIn.com. To hear this program and many other archived editions at any time, visit SoundCloud.com. Search for username KALA Radio. There you'll find Relevant or Irrelevant and many other productions produced at the St. Ambrose University Communications Center. This concludes the 367th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zappel. My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Lauren Davis, Professor of Anthropology and Executive Director of the Keystone Archaeological Research Fund, who has talked with us about early human history of the Northwest Coast. The history buff for today's show is Terry Toppler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.